Today's episode of the Hammersley Inquisition is sponsored in part by Placebex. Now, I don't know about you, but I am getting to that age where everything hurts. I wake up each morning and pray that all my body parts and everything coming out of me is the right color. At any given moment, I'm probably considering myself to be afflicted with a half dozen chronic medical conditions. And now there is a single medication available for each and every one of them. It's called Placebex. Now, I trust Placebex because it is the most tested drug in the history of pharmaceuticals. Placebex has proven effective in countless clinical trials for thousands, maybe millions of ailments, often outperforming much more heralded and expensive competition. Placebex is so powerful that scientists and regulators practically require it to be offered in every reputable controlled study. Don't bother asking your doctor if Placebex is right for you. It's right for you. It's right for everyone. Placebex. It can't hurt to try it. Hello and welcome back to the Hammerslay Inquisition, the world's most self-indulgent interview show. I am Jason Hammerslay. And I must warn you that today's conversation is going to touch on some adult themes, by which I mean politics. Politics, or at least the awareness of it, is the exclusive province of grown-ups. And, and, you know, maybe that's what real innocence is. Uh, when you don't realize that things are political or when you find out that politics usually makes everything worse and, and makes it harder to solve problems. I, I mean, really – for as much as we look down on members of Congress for acting like children, maybe we should be encouraging them to act a little more like children, who I think for the most part are instinctively kind and blissfully uncynical. Uh, but we adults have to deal with it, uh, if not in our relationships and our jobs, then at least in an effort to vote responsibly, which I hope everyone is doing. And and so – I've been thinking a lot about what makes up a person's political point of view. Uh, a, a little later on, we'll talk about some of the rudimentary tools that can help you identify yours. But when I imagine what separates me from the people that I disagree with politically, I think about three things. So number one, personal values. What is important and what should we be spending our finite resources, money and time on? Number two is responsibility. What does the government owe us? What do we owe to our fellow citizens and what are we responsible for ourselves? And then number three is urgency. Things are going to change. Everything is born, changes, and expires. So should we speed that change along or slow it down or just rely on the market to grow at its own pace? And when I think about the people that I disagree with politically, well, first I think about my parents and my in-laws, and then I think about some of the people I work with because – I work in Washington, D.C., and politics is just the, the water that we all swim in down here. But among the people I am not forced to spend time with, I think about today's guest, who has the honor of being my most conservative Republican friend. 
Phil Unwin and I were classmates, fraternity brothers, and one-time sweetmates at the University of Rochester. And he, like me, is a child of the Flower City suburbs. So I, I want to welcome my homeboy, Phil Unwin. How are you doing, Phil? Good afternoon, homeboy. It's good to talk to you as well. All right. Are you buckled in? I, I have my seatbelt on and I am ready for the ride. Tray tables up. All right. Let us proceed to questions and tangents and answers. Questions and answers. So I have been calling you Phil, but truth be told, that is not your real first name. What is your true given name? And more importantly, what else are you hiding? <laughs> uh, I was born Shay Philip Unwin in the humble town of Saranac Lake, New York, uh, low uh, 44 years ago now. And uh, as for the other things I'm hiding, I, I'm sorry, I, I, I tell you, but I'd have to kill you, Jason. Sorry, buddy. That's to the rules of the game. Well, I understand that, but maybe you can you can explain at what point you decided to go with Phil rather than mm -hmm. Shay. Was it decided for you, or was this uh, some form of teenage rebellion? <laughs> uh, teenage rebellion's probably fairly close to the mark. Actually, I never, ever, ever liked the name Shay growing up. I felt like it was much too effeminate. It was mispronounced constantly. Now mispronounced. It's, what did people I, I, say? There was, oh my goodness, I got Sean, I got Shane. Shane was very common, even though there's plainly no N in sight. Uh, Shaw came up. Shia, that was the one I really hated. There's probably a couple others I'm, I'm, I'm forgetting about, and probably a few that were born of the fact that I have always had dreadful handwriting, so they're kind of my fault, I suppose. But mm -hmm. yeah, somewhere along the way, I figured, you know what? Nobody's going to mess up Philip. And uh, right after high school, I reasoned that I was going to be meeting a whole bunch of new people in college and that from then on, I was like, well, I'm going to be Phil or Philip, whichever people prefer. Either one is fine. And it's stuck for 27 years now. Now, what are your other aliases? It's funny you mention that because I do. I did actually have an alias in high school. We had ID day senior year. And what the first gym class of senior year was all or, or your school year, I should say, was always ID picture day. And so we'd all go up and we'd all get our IDs like, you know, good little Greece Athena students. And then we'd sit in the bleachers and chit chat for a while. And as a joke, I was sitting with my friends and I said, you know what, I'm going to go get an ID in a different name. They're like, what? No way. And, you know, I mean. Looking back on it, this was not a big deal, but this was quite an act of rebellion in high school, I guess. So okay, so this so, wasn't replacing your actual ID. This was getting a, a second ID. This this was my very first and really only now that I think about it, fake ID. Uh, it was good for absolutely nothing. It was just a school ID card with my picture and a different name on it, and I decided to go with the name Frank Thurman because we were broken up by homeroom, and I reasoned, okay, my homeroom was roughly. Uh, T through V. And I was like, okay, well, it's got to be a name in there. So that it's delivered to my homeroom. And uh, <laughs> at first I was going to say Frank Thomas, but I was like, well, no, I'm not a you know great hitter for the Chicago White Sox. So uh, I went with Frank Thurman and I went up, I picked a different line. So it wasn't the same photographer from before who <laughs> I, I'm sure couldn't have picked me out of a lineup anyway. 
But I go up, get my picture, tell them my name is Frank Thurman. My homeroom's 244. And the day the IDs came, I said to my homeroom teacher, oh, I'll, I'll go to the office and get him for you. So, oh, that's really nice of you. Thanks. And so I go and I go through the pile. I pull out the one for Frank Thurman, put it in my pocket, gave the rest to her, and she handed them out to everybody. And I show my friends like, hey, I got the Frank Thurman ID. And I became known as Frank Thurman for uh, for most of the rest of the year at that point. And it was a it was a big hit with everybody. Don't let any of these municipal voting laws uh, hear about that. <laughs> I When I got this, I was like, oh, my God, I can work my way up to a driver's license for Frank Thurman. I could do absolutely no such thing. But it, the seed was planted in my head for, you know, a a, a long term, uh, if not a voting fraud situation, at the very least a driver's license fraud situation. Now, you also uh, have adopted uh, the nickname Funwin, yep. uh, you know, the, the portmanteau of your, your first and last names. Do you think of Funwin as a separate character, you know, like more footloose and devil may care than Phil would be, you know, like like Kanye and Yeezy or Beyonce with Sasha Fierce? Is Funwin a different guy? I like to think him, think of him as the Mr. Hyde to my Dr. Jekyll. Yes. And so it was probably Funwin that went and got that extra ID. It absolutely was. Although back then it was Spunwin. Oh. And then as soon as I got to college, uh, I'm pretty sure it was Eric Carr who dubbed me Funwin. Or actually, no, it might have been Eric Afi. It was one of those two people. Someone with Eric in their name was the one who <laughs> came up with it. I'm pretty sure of that. Uh, well, that is like a second or third or fourth level fraud. <laughs> so you were actually a year ahead of me in college, and mm-hmm. yet you are younger than me in terms of actual time having lived as a person. So what is the hurry, Phil? I'm actually a time lord. Uh, I skipped second grade was what happened. And I didn't have a whole lot of say in it. I was I was getting hundreds on pretty much everything. And I went to a very small school. I used to live in a tiny little town in the Adirondacks before moving to the glorious suburb of Greece. And I just got called into the school psychologists one day and they had me do all these puzzles and I would recognize it later as being some form of IQ testing. And I would go and I'd do these puzzles, you know, every day for a week or two. And I was going, oh, yeah, these puzzles are a lot of fun. And at some point they told my mom, okay, he really is, he's too advanced for second grade, just put him into third. And my mom said to me that night, uh, okay, tomorrow morning you're going to go to third grade. I'm like, what? And I just cried <laughs> like a baby. You know, I don't know those kids. Uh, so Was that hard? Actually, it was. Like, I, I don't think they do it very much anymore. I think it was a lot more common when we were kids than it is now. I think that's but, true. Yeah, I think the, the solution for kids who were too advanced for their current grade level was not well, we'll give them these extra, these separate projects or, or whatever. It was just, well, bump them up to the next grade. And perhaps in a bigger school district, there would have been an opportunity to say, hey, look, let's just put them in advanced math and advanced science or whatever. But at the tiny little school I was at, it was just, well, okay, third grade for him. And it was hard. It took me, it took me a little while to make friends. I made a couple of friends right away. But for for quite a while, I actually was resented by a lot of the other kids in the class because I was the, I was not just the new kid, but I was also the youngest kid. Mm-hmm. And that followed me actually all the way through high school, too. I was always I was the last of my friends to drive. I was the last of my friends to get any of those age related kind of milestones. And so it was a good thing academically, but it was kind of a it was a drawback socially. And that's probably why they don't do it much anymore. 
Yeah. Well, just think if you had scored a little bit better on that test, you probably would have been put into some like CIA black ops spy oh. program. Oh, I'm so disappointed now. That was that was like my life's goal. And, you know, oh well, okay. you should have studied harder. I should have studied harder for those little puzzles. Yeah. Well, uh, speaking of school, uh, as you mentioned earlier, you graduated high school from Greece, Athena High School. Greece, Athena. Uh, out of high school, you migrated about 12 miles south to the University of Rochester, where you majored in what? I majored in political science and picked up a history major along the way by accident. So <laughs> political science and history. So political science. As a science major, did you find yourself <laughs> pigeonholed as a nerd? <laughs> uh, I, I was I pigeonholed myself as a nerd the minute I played Dungeons and Dragons for the first time, and I already I already made a Doctor Who reference, so I, I think I think the the imagery in in your audience should be pretty clear at this point. Well, Randy Newman's song "Political Science" includes the refrain, "Let's drop the big one." What do you think he was referring to? I never heard that song. I'm going to assume, given that Randy Newman had his halcyon days in the 1980s, I'm going to assume he was worried, uh, like many others were, about the possibility of Reagan dropping the big one or many big ones, uh, ICBMs, uh, on the Soviet Union. That's my guess. I think that's probably a, a safe assumption, and you with your combination political science history degree is probably even better informed than I would be. If that's the case, do you think that the Brian Adams song, Don't Drop That Bomb on Me, was an implicit retort to Randy Newman? Ooh, that's a good one. Brian Adams was a Canadian. He would have a little different perspective on that. <laughs> As for history, there is, of course, that famous saying, those who fail to study history are doomed. Did you specialize in any particular era or epic? I was always fascinated by military history. Anything, and, and still am for that matter, anything that I could get my hands on pertaining to military history, I was all over that. And I, I recognize that that, is, that tends to be written from a certain point of view. A very sing it's often read from a very singular point of view, very often that of the victors, you know, and mm. as Americans, that's pretty much how we viewed most military history in, in our country. But uh, be that as it may have, I've always just found it absolutely fascinating. And even uh, having graduated school uh, quite a while ago, I still just devour uh, information that I can about military history. I love Dan Carlin's Hardcore History podcast, which... 90% of that ends up being military history. Um, Mike Duncan's History of Rome uh, contains a lot of that. Uh, I, I still just absolutely devour that. It makes sense that as a political science major who sort of accidentally picked up a history major, it makes sense that you would be interested in that military history since military history, of course, dovetails very much with politics. What What, was, yep. what is that saying that – War is the continuation of politics by other means. Right. Exactly. By Klaus, von Clausewitz. Well, he would know. He would. Uh, at the U of R, you joined the same fraternity of which I am a member, uh, Delta Upsilon. Let me put you on the spot. Do you remember the four founding principles? And I'll, I'll admit that I did not before I looked it up again. Uh, let me remember. I know one was the diffusion of liberal culture. The advancement, advancement of – Justice. Justice. Okay. The promotion of 
friendship. Brother, friendship. I was going to say brotherhood. That's close. Very, very close. The development of character. Ah. And indeed, the diffusion of liberal culture, which is the most confusing of the four, probably the most memorable. What is <laughs> what is your favorite piece of liberal culture? My favorite piece of liberal culture? I mean, I I think that most of the culture we're exposed to is liberal. I mean, it, it, the whole idea of even Hollywood is to, well, I guess the idea is to make money, but the secondary idea is to you know, infuse people with stories. I, I love movies. They're often, you know, kind of a low form of entertainment, I suppose, sometimes. But I think that's liberal culture in a way. You know, there's. I think so. And you are an aficionado of rock music, right? I am. That could fairly be considered liberal culture, as yeah. opposed to maybe country and Western music. <laughs> a less liberal culture. <laughs> Have you found your fraternity affiliation helpful in any professional capacity, or are you mostly just in it for the fundraising appeals? Ooh, I do love those fundraising appeals, but I found it to be very helpful in my professional life because when I started out my career after law school, I was working at a legal publisher, and I was looking for a career change because it became very apparent to me that it was a dead-end job, and Joe DeCourcy, who Mutual friend, mutual brother. Mutual friend, brother, yep. He said his firm was looking for people. Uh, Joe was a very new associate at that time, and they had just had a couple people leave. And I applied, and uh, I got the job, and that's what set me on my career path. So professionally, it ended up being a, a huge asset. So at that time, you became a, a practicing attorney focusing mm -hmm. on workers' compensation and discrimination. Do I have that right? You have it correct, Yes. And how much are you billing me for this conversation right now? I'll, I'll let you know when we're done. We didn't negotiate a rate, but, you know, we'll we'll figure that out. You'll give me the friends and family rate. You'll get the friends and family discount. That's right. right. Uh, I ask this next question as uh, someone who himself owes his continued employment to the largesse and wisdom of corporate America. Isn't it great? <laughs> I have I have found corporate America to be it's it's been good for me. Uh, the vast majority of our clients are are big companies, uh, many in the Fortune 500, and it's, it's worked great for me. Uh, my best friend uh, Mike Willoughby, he's uh, he's been my friend uh, since uh, the age of 13. He always used to say, you know, some people. When they get older, they they sell out. But Phil was born that way, so you really can't say he's a sellout. <laughs> yeah, I, I think – and I say this with all sincerity. I think that corporate America gets a bad rap. I mean mm -hmm. say what you want about the corrosive effects of unfettered capitalism, but at least you always know where you stand, right? I mean – That's right. Uh, so for a long while, and perhaps uh, still you can uh, inform me, the core of your practice was litigation which means you were actually in court, like Perry Mason style, right? I was. The last couple of years, I have been, I guess, the term for, term for it might be kicked upstairs. I've transitioned to more of a management supervisory business generation role. But yeah, I have handled, uh, I don't know, I'm going to say thousands of cases before the Workers' Compensation Board in my career. And it's... I've taken a lot of testimony from a lot of different people, and it's actually it's different than 
what you would see on court and TV. Uh, the Workers' Compensation Board is a very streamlined legal process uh, relative to uh, standard civil litigation. Uh, trials take place usually in a very limited span of time. Usually the judge will give you one hour, maybe 90 minutes at most, three Ooh. hours if it's, yeah, it, three that's, hours if there's a lot speed of litigation. It is speed litigation. And the goal is to just make a pretty quick determination on the merits and not call an endless string of witnesses. If, if you tell a judge, hey, judge, any 10 witnesses are going to say, uh-uh, Mr. Arnold, you can narrow it down to three or some some much lower number anyway. So there's really no room for like the the fireworks of a Saul Goodman or the the sleazy charm of a Dan Fielding. Oh, 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 oh contraire, mon frere. They, I have met I have met more than a few attorneys who I think would probably look at Saul Goodman on TV and say, I don't see what he's doing that's so wrong. Actually, there's. There was one attorney uh, who, who shall remain nameless who they they had a settlement in place on the case. The claimant, the person receiving the settlement, died before the settlement hearing. So this attorney's office sent her sister in her place to <laughs> say that she was still alive to collect the check. And when they found out, you know, there was uh, obviously all sorts of accusations of fraudulent activity abounded. And this firm was run by two brothers. One of the brothers fell on his sword and said it was all on him. And the other one knew nothing, which everyone kind of rolled their eyes at. But uh, be that as it may, he was disbarred completely. And uh, I think they carried on business uh, with the other attorney at the helm. And I think the brother who was disbarred went to medical school, became a doctor. And then I think he lost oh, oh, his great. medical license, too. Yeah. Ooh, OK. So, yeah, I've, I've heard a few cases like that, but that's the one that always stands out the most to me. Now, you're a pretty even tempered, mild mannered guy. Have you ever been held in contempt of court? I have not. Is there anything less than contempt, like mild annoyance of court? <laughs> I've definitely had a few judges say I'm getting on the nerves, but uh, I've never been held in, uh, in in modest contempt of court or anything like that, no. <laughs> well, if you're not getting on their nerves, I feel like maybe you're not doing your job right. That's a fair point. I did have one day when the judge was upset at me. He was pushing me for something. The claimant had two attorneys there, one of whom has also since been disbarred. Uh, the other whom knew nothing about workers' comp and still not sure why he was there. And uh, see, the claimant also had, I think his mom was there and like his nurse was there. And I felt like I was right in the middle of a shooting gallery because everyone was just staring daggers at me. And after this guy who knew nothing about workers' comp law started lecturing me on how to do my job, I just, that I absolutely lost my temper. Uh, it was everything I could do not to just start throwing F-bombs at everybody in the room except the court reporter. And eventually I just said, thank you for telling me I had to do my job. And I pointed at the judge and said, you're going to reduce benefits to this rate. And if you don't, I'm going to appeal and I'm going to win. And that's the end of this discussion. And he backed down and everyone just kind of was like, okay, well, he's taking charge. And after the hearing, I went to the comp attorney and I said, don't you ever send that guy here again, ever, if you ever want to get anything from me. And I don't think he was ever back at the, the board after that. I feel like if you know if there's a nurse in the room, you probably you're down a hole. I was indeed. Well, you now make your home in the suburbs of Rochester, yes? Still do. 
I, I, I am, I do not adhere to the God of travelers like you do, unfortunately. <laughs> well, I, you see, I have a theory that there are three reasons to stay in a place. There is affection, obligation, or inertia, or some combination thereof. So what is it that has kept you in the Rochester area? Well, I mean, I think affection's fairly low on the list, but obligation's a big part of it. And yeah, there's there's some affection here. This is, you know, like it or lump it, this is home. And there's definitely some inertia as well. But uh, ultimately, my firm had said, hey, we, we want you to, to start the Rochester Workers' Comp practice. And I've been very successful at that. And it's just kind of been like, look, this is kind of where they want me. It's worked out very well for all of us. And my wife and I just bought a a big new house right before the, the pandemic hit. And Oh, great. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. What part of town? Pittsburgh. Oh, nice. Well, yeah, I have to say I certainly have uh, my share of homesickness for Rochester. My parents don't even live there anymore. It's hard to find reasons to go back up to Rochester that that aren't funereal. But especially now that remote work is gaining traction, I sometimes harbor fantasies about moving back up there, although I could never convince my uh, my wife to do it. I would really have to lean into the whole climate change angle and convince her that uh, Rochester is going to be beachfront property in 20 years. I thought about that, actually. I. I, I I don't know whether AGW is a thing or not. It may be, it may not be, but if it is, well, Rochester is going to look like Virginia in uh, 40, 50 years, something like that. And we're also one of the places that isn't prone to natural disasters. We don't get tornadoes, we don't get hurricanes. It's not an earthquake zone. We don't get flooding unless you're right on Lake Ontario. Uh, all we get are snowstorms, which are nowhere near as bad as what a lot of the rest of the country deals with. So that's, yeah. you know, if you want to incorporate that in your sales pitch, by all means. So as anyone uh, who knows me all too well, there were times, this question is very much about me, so bear with me. In my 20s, especially, I f- tended to flail about looking for love. And I often found frustration in that arena in one form or another. I whined about it a lot. I certainly wrote about it a lot uh, for anyone who would listen or read it. And you were one of those people uh, who read that and offered some sympathy. So, so thank you for that. But I remember a specific time and I must've been caterwauling in a blog or an email or something. And you said something to the effect of eventually if there's any justice in the world, you'll eventually start dating Kirsten Dunst. <laughs> I, 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 I'm maybe I'm mangling that entirely, but I definitely remember that you invoked Kirsten Dunst. And I really appreciated that as a, a vote of confidence from a friend in a bad time. So thank you. But I always wondered, I always wondered why Kirsten Dunst? Was she your avatar of feminine perfection at that time, or did you just think that the two of us would work well together? Well, I don't know her personally, alas, and so I can't say that you would have worked with her. So I'm guessing that when I said that to you, she was doing the Spider-Man movies, the Tobey Maguire Spider-Man movies, and I definitely remember seeing her in those movies and thinking that, uh, she might well have been Aphrodite reborn 
right here on this planet. Uh, I I thought she looked fabulous in those movies. Well, thanks for setting us up in your imagination. I, I, you know, I it, it worked out great for you, so I'm I'm glad that uh, even if it wasn't Kirsten Dunst, that things things worked well for you. I have to say, even if we just look at at Bring It On, that cheerleader movie, which I think was possibly her big break, I'm much more of an Eliza Dushku guy, but I, I do suspect that Eliza Dushku could break me in half. So um, <laughs> you you probably made the right call for me. I like to think so. Yeah, you know, I'll I'll be I'll be starting my own podcast about celebrity matchmaking one of these days. <laughs> All right, I, I'll be your sidekick. Sweet. So that ends the question and answer portion of the podcast from me. But now we will move on to everyone's favorite part of the podcast, questions from the listening audience. Now for my favorite part of the show. What did I say? Talk to the audience. Oh, God, this is always death. And this is the section where I give the listeners a chance to ask questions. Uh, But since my listeners aren't asking any questions, I'm using questions submitted to other people's podcasts. And our first question comes from the Locked On Dolphins podcast, which is part of the Locked On Podcast Network. It focuses on the Miami Dolphins, although I do think that Locked On Dolphins sort of sounds like something related to rogue submarines. But. (laughs) Recently, a question was asked from D. Crane, a listener in Ohio, from top to bottom post-draft, how would you rank the AFC East compared to the other divisions? I am tired of hearing how tough the AFC North is from coworkers. What do you think, Phil? Well, well, I think the AFC East is – I think it's going to be a, a pretty tough division. I think – and it, it brings me no joy to say this. I think the Buffalo Bills are going to be excellent this year. I think you can put them down for a minimum of 12 wins. And I'm, I'm not applying a reverse jinx there as far as you know. I think the <laughs> Patriots will – I think they will contend. I don't think they're going to be as good as as we are hearing about. I keep hearing, oh, well, if you know Cam Newton played with COVID last year and – Look, that guy couldn't throw the football more than 10 yards. So let's, you know, let's see him actually throw a pass down the field and complete it before we're, you know, saying that they're they're back to where they were. But be that as it may, their defense is going to be a lot better. Uh, I think they're a good contender for nine or 10 wins. I think the J- the Jets are going to be bad, but probably not apocalyptically bad this year. So oh, I don't I don't know. The Jets are probably going to be pretty bad. I, I think you're right that the uh, the Patriots are sort of the X factor in the answer yeah. to this question, whether you think that last year was a an aberration because it was a you know weird COVID year or whether it really is uh, the, the curse of Tom Brady or the the inevitable denouement of Bill Belichick. Yeah, I think they're definitely the X factor. I think Miami is going to be good. I don't think they'll be as good as Buffalo unless – Tua makes an incredible leap in year two, which it could happen, but I I think Buffalo's the the this the good the right choice to pick to win that division if you're you're doing that. But that wasn't the question. The question was how they rank with the other divisions. I think the AFC North is going to be awesome. That that's going to be a bloodbath. Uh, Cleveland is going to be excellent. Baltimore is going to be really good. I think Pittsburgh might be ripe for a fall, but. It wouldn't surprise me if they find a way to win 10 games. Cincinnati's going to be better. So that's going to be a tough division. The AFC South, Tennessee and Indianapolis should both be better than, well, maybe Indianapolis won't be much better because Philip Rivers actually had a pretty good season last year. Um, yeah, it's all about the Wenceslas, right? 
Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you said that. It's hard to it's hard to turn Carson into uh, you know a, <laughs> a term like that. Uh, Jacksonville will be better. Houston's going to be terrible. So okay, I think the AFC is the better division than that on balance. The AFC West is if Aaron Rodgers goes to Denver. Then actually, the AFC West is probably oh. going to be better than the AFC East on base. That's a major hypothetical right there. It is. I tend to think that Green Bay is going to say, "Look, hang out here, do one more year, and then we'll we'll look to trade you with a full off season." I think they might make a handshake deal to that effect. But boy, the rumors that he was going to go to Denver were strong enough that the odds on Denver winning the AFC West absolutely plummeted right before the draft. Obviously, Vegas thinks that's a reasonable possibility. I think Aaron Rodgers is either going to be back with Green Bay or he's going to be an organic uh, farmer in Santa Barbara or something. (laughs) Well, I I know Dave Levitt listens to this podcast, so for his sake, let's hope that he doesn't go anywhere. The NFC West will be good. The NFC South is – I don't think that's going to be all that great. Tampa's the defending champs, but – I think the rest of that division is pretty soft. NFC North isn't very good. The NFC East is dreadful. So I would say the AFC East is probably my, I would say the third or fourth best division in football off the top of my head. Next, we have a couple of questions from the Corner Cutter podcast, which bills itself as an informative weekly podcast all about solving the Rubik's Cube. Now, I do encourage you, Phil, not to focus on the Rubik's Cube aspects of this, but feel free to interpret this question in, in whatever way uh, you feel is appropriate. Uh, a Rubik Cubing asks, what do you believe is humanly the best possible time, considering the best possible scrambles? So let me interpret this in, in, in the way I view it. If we divorce that question from the topic of, of cubing entirely, my mind goes naturally to breakfast scrambles. Mm. And the best one of those I ever had was in Chicago. I was once visiting Chicago and my friend Melissa Mizwa had wisely encouraged me to forget about deep dish pizza and focus on what Chicago is really best at, encased meats. And so I forget the restaurant, but I had an excellent sausage scramble with like three different kinds of sausage, and it's still a part of me in more ways than one. So if you're talking about a good time with scrambles, I think Chicago is the place to go. How about you? Well, I don't really do breakfast scrambles, but I have become a master of the breakfast sandwich. And yes, uh, and part of that, again, is because my wife is an excellent baker. Sometimes she'll make croissants. And so we set a few of those aside and a breakfast sandwich on a homemade croissant is absolutely to die for you. You need dream about no other breakfast foods. So if I was going to go into Phil's diner and say, Mm -hmm. give me an unwin sandwich, what is what's in it? I think you we would have to go with. Uh, my wife's homemade croissants with uh, scrambled egg, cheddar, probably three slices of crisp bacon and sriracha. Ooh! And that's yes, that that's gonna be that's gonna be the ideal unwin breakfast sandwich. Zesty, and it includes a scrambled egg, so you did end it up does. Uh, answering yep. the question. That's that's oh, yes. beautiful synergy. Uh, the final question comes in to the Order of Man podcast. 
in which hosts Kip Sorensen and Ryan Mitchler, Mickler, and uh, Kip Sorensen and Ryan reclaim what it means to be a man, interviewing the world's most successful men on the planet. So presumably excluding astronauts to extract their hard fought lessons and experiences. And a personal note, I would wager that this is the kind of podcast that does not believe in deodorant or women's suffrage. Anyway, uh, the <laughs> caller Austin E36, you sunk my battleship, asks, what are your thoughts on Dwayne The Rock Johnson running for president? What do you think about that? You know I think the last five-ish years have really just kind of taken the roof off for whatever we would have adhered to for what we need or expect from a president. So I think somebody did a really great job of summing up by saying, I can't believe that we have a president who sleeps with porn stars and wants to start a space force, and I still can't stand him. <laughs> so you know what? Sure, Rock, I'll hear you out. Why not? So you do you think it's okay in general, in principle, for celebrities to run for president and to be president? No, no, I, I think it's a terrible idea. But like I said, the roof is off at this point. I I think there's got to be some base requirement of just just understanding how government works would be lovely. I, I think, you know, people say, well, Ronald Reagan was an actor. Well, he was also governor of California, too. I mean, the, the man had experience as an executive before he ran for president. And before that, and, he, he led the labor union. So he had true. policy yeah. experience. Right. Yep. So I think we are really in this just incredibly unserious time. Where, again, w once once we elected Donald Trump, it, it was OK. You know, why not? Sure, Rock, go for it. I think it's a terrible idea, but I didn't think Trump was a particularly good idea. I don't think Biden's a particularly good idea. And why not? If, well, if he's got good things to say and he'll surround himself with good people. Why not? He calls himself a centrist, but has rejected party labels. He says he did support both Obama and Biden. I, I wouldn't ask you, you know, to carry the hypothetical forward and, and, and say who you would vote for. I won't ask you to do that. But let's say he runs in 2028 as a Democrat against, I don't know, Josh Hawley or Donald Trump Jr. or Nikki Haley. Do you think he could win? Maybe. I guess what I would say is this. Anybody who is able to get a major party nomination can win. So mm. if he was to run as a Democrat and, you know, maybe it was, you know, much like the Republican nominating process of 2016 and an absolute car wreck, then you know, he was able to come through on name recognition and not being all that offensive to anybody and all the other candidates gunning for one another and not turning on him until it was too late, then, yeah. I mean, if you can get a major party nomination at this point, you are essentially guaranteed 40 percent of the vote. That's that's really the floor at this point. Uh, you might even go as high as 42 or 43 percent. Yeah, and, I think that's absolutely right. And and given the state of the, the Democratic bench since 
two of the top contenders were over 75 years old mm-hmm. this past election. I don't think it's, it's outside the realm of possibility that at least some neophyte celebrity comes out of the woodwork and gets the nomination. I don't think that's ridiculous yeah. at all. Nope, I don't either. Well, thank you very much, listeners, for your provocative questions. As I said, we will delve a little bit deeper into politics in just a moment. We will pause now for a word from our sponsor. Goodness knows, the pandemic has been tough on us all. Are you a struggling small business owner trying to stay afloat? Or maybe you're working on a little side hustle to make some extra bread. Or even just trying to stay connected to friends and loved ones. Well, I'm here to tell you that help is on the way. You're familiar with MailChimp and SurveyMonkey. Now prepare yourself for the very latest in primate-based productivity tools, Fax Orangutan. Fax Orangutan is a front-facing, optimized, cloud-hosted communications client combining vintage, beloved analog Telefax simile messages with modern desktop PC web application technology. Boy, that's a mouthful. A mouthful of ingenuity. Say goodbye to not knowing whether the recipient has received your message. With Fax Orangutan, the reliable piercing screech of the fax machine tone gives you the comfort of knowing that your communication will be received by its recipient within the next 10 to 25 minutes. Now take it from me. I've been using Fax Orangutan to distribute my podcasts via fax for the last few months, and I have received zero complaints. My inbox is more organized, my clothes smell fresher, and my lumbago has dissipated almost entirely. I especially enjoy taking advantage of Fax Orangutan's advanced suite of transmission analytics. There are analytics of the analytics. They have so many analytics. You would be shocked at how many analytics you can have. Every once in a while, I'll see an analytic that I didn't even know was an analytic, and I'll say... This is so advanced. It's like analytics from the future. But with all the classic retro street cred that lets your audience know you're the coolest son of a gun there is. And now with this special offer, you can enjoy the same ape-adjacent convenience and level of service that I do. Just go to FaxOrangutan.com and sign up now with the promo code INQUISITION to get your first four months at absolutely no cost to you. Minus a $400 setup charge and $49.99 licensing fee. That includes a complimentary set of fax cover sheets with the whimsical fax orangutan logo featuring Stan the orangutan in his cosmonaut jumpsuit. Folks, you do not want to miss this deal. And you do not want to miss the opportunity to experience the latest and greatest in simian-related office technology. That's faxorangutan.com. Please note that the folks at Facts Orangutan are not affiliated with Orangutan Facts, LLC, and they do not endorse or take responsibility for the activities of Orangutan Facts, LLC, no matter what they claim they are doing for the environment. Anyway, one more time, that's FactsOrangutan.com. It's faxing awesome. Now back to the show. This segment is called But Seriously. Seriously. 
and it's when we uh, strip away the silliness and, and talk about something that's real and meaningful. And now I realize I'm about to get into a political discussion. I hope it doesn't devolve into a debate. Uh, I've already started the discussion, and, and I want to continue it with a, a smart guy and an experienced litigator. So I'm very interested in what he thinks, but I'm also a little afraid I'm walking into the gorilla cage <laughs> with banana underwear. But here goes. I've long known you as a, a conventionally right-leaning individual, and I've, I've always thought of myself as a conventionally left-leaning individual. But being an evidence-based podcast, I wanted to quantify that. So as you recall, I, I suggested that we both take two different political quizzes to determine where we stood. Now, the the political compass test measures each of us on two axes, the authoritarianism versus libertarianism axis and the economic left-right axis. And we shared our, our scores with each other. You and I both scored on the libertarian side of the axis, with you being fairly close to the midpoint and me being maybe slightly more extreme. Uh, and meanwhile, you scored squarely on the on the right side of the economic axis and I squarely on the left. And for whatever it's worth, there is a social studies teacher who has uh, taken it upon himself to map all the American presidents on this grid. So basically he took 46 different quizzes, putting himself in the in the heads of all 46 American presidents. And my data point matches up best with Jimmy Carter and yours with Warren Harding. <laughs> Ouch. Just not happy news for either of us, but it's just one person's opinion. For a, a little more nuance, uh, we each took the – I side with test, uh, which is a, a more sophisticated instrument that evaluates us on the wide spectrum of issues. And you scored at least a 90 percent alignment with the conventional Republican Party and the Constitutional Party, both of which are right wing outfits prizing small government. Meanwhile, I scored a high of 84 percent with the Democratic Party and 84 percent with the Green Party, which is denoted as progressive and collectivist. So these are imperfect instruments, and I, I know I bristle a little bit at those scores and their indications, but they at least give us a baseline for how we relate to each other politically. Mm-hmm. So let me start off by asking you then, how do you label yourself if you do at all? Well, I would label myself as economically conservative and socially moderate. If you want to think libertarian versus authoritarian and that axis, then, yeah, I, I think that's probably about accurate that I'm a bit more libertarian than authoritarian. But I think that one of the things that we are seeing now is we I, I really believe that we may be coming to a bit of a realignment of the parties. And this happens every so often. I think we're seeing more of a consensus from the the you know the, the farther ranks of each party that is the the farther left of the democratic party and the farther right of the republican party i think we're seeing much more of a consensus that certainly on foreign affairs that we're taking much less of an interest in the rest of the world i think there is more of a tendency towards isolationism from those sides of the the political spectrum yes i can and certainly see that and that wasn't really the Republican Party that I 
I had personally signed up for. I am a, a big believer in free trade. I am a believer in a muscular foreign policy. And I think that we are definitely seeing much more interest in, you know, from from the, the farther left saying, hey, do no harm. We, we don't want to intervene. We don't want to harm anybody else anywhere else in the world, which is commendable in, in its own way. And then from the farther right saying, listen, you know, we can do without the rest of the world, which is actually in its own way true as well. The U.S. is a net exporter of almost everything. So if by, you know, some act of God or what have you, we were unable to trade with the rest of the world, the U.S. would still have what it needed. There would be a lot of changes economically, obviously, and there would be a lot of loss from gains of trade. But the U.S. would would go on functioning more or less okay. So I believe that we are starting to see that sort of realignment uh, starting to build. You know, the the uh, one of the interesting things about the 2016 election was that a lot of Bernie Sanders supporters voted for Donald Trump, and it's certainly possible that may have just been a middle finger to Hillary Clinton. I, I wouldn't rule that out, mm-hmm. but. There was a lot of appeal of what Trump's original message was to those voters. You know, they wanted uh, Trump is is not a free trader. You know, it, it's it's always well, we're we're trying to get the best deal. Well, free is a pretty good deal. I, I think you're you're seeing a lot of that consensus starting to build. I mean, the the party that I joined when I turned 18, it, it was a party devoted to free trade, social conservatism, lower taxes, limited government and a muscular foreign policy. If you look at those five things, how many of them has the Republican Party really lived up to? Okay, lower taxes, but we'll give you that one. Social conservatism, yeah, it, you know, a, as defined by opposition to abortion, that's, you know, that, that's been a fairly consistent tenet as well. But limited government, no, absolutely not. Uh, free trade, uh, Trump has taken that one off the table. And muscular foreign policy, we we think of Trump as being a a very bellicose president, and certainly his rhetoric was extremely bellicose. But if you look at his actions and what he actually did, he was probably the most dovish president since Carter and maybe even since before World War II. I know that seems strange to say, but if you take rhetoric out of it completely and focus on actions. He was the inverse of Teddy Roosevelt, right? That's precisely it. That's exactly the analogy I've made. So it's becoming a strange time. I, I certainly, you know, I, I remain a registered Republican. I would like to see my party get back to, you know, get back to Reagan. We, you know, we venerate Reagan on a level just below Jesus Christ in the Republican Party. but. It is a bit of an interesting time because I I do think we're starting to see some of that realignment happening because I it's very hard for me right now to look at the two major parties and definitively point to policy positions that they hold on mass. I don't think there's very many that you could say, yes, Republicans believe this as a rule and Democrats believe this as a rule. Uh, I don't know if that's good or bad. I think it's it's strange, though. And I think I think you could point to Trump for an awful lot of that, because Trumpism, in a lot of ways, just became 
the policy of owning libs, which I don't think is terribly useful as a policy, but that was really very much of what Trump stood for, just the idea of poking liberals in the eye, giving them the middle finger and walking away. And I don't think that's sustainable as a, as a policy for a president for any length of time, but it definitely led to a lot of these policy positions becoming very muddled. I, I don't know what the two major parties are going to look like in five or 10 years. I don't know if that's uh, a bit of an end run around your question. Well, let me put it this way. Let's separate politics from from the parties and just talk about philosophy. Maybe the the best example or testing ground is the Supreme Court because they're they're not politicians. They are not nominally members of any particular party and they operate based purely on philosophy and uh, a subject in which you're well versed the law and there are there is such thing as a conservative justice and uh, a liberal justice do you think that philosophical system of of politics is working better in that venue than it is in the the legislature or the administration one of the things that I do like about the Supreme Court and really the federal court system, for that matter, is that you're not trying to grab headlines. You're not trying to own the other guys. You know, it is ultimately down to your philosophy, your experience and your reading of the law. So I think there is definitely to the extent that anyone in American government should be admired. I think the federal court system is. Uh, probably a, a good choice for that, for those reasons. And honestly, the other side of it is that the judges who are handling these cases and their clerks are, they're very bright people. They're there because they're smart. You know, it, it takes a very serious level of scholarship to get those positions. So they really are being guided in their decision-making by the best and brightest. And even even when there's a decision at the federal court level that comes out that seems crazy, at least I know there was some significant thought and work that went into it. And I think you know, that, that went beyond just chasing headlines. You have more trust in the judicial system than you do other branches of government is what you're saying. I do. You wanted to have it as a philosophical, not a pragmatic issue. But I, I think that that's something that Actually, I don't think I know that's something that Mitch McConnell figured out a number of years ago in that legislators are becoming more and more generalist. And it's not a Republican thing or a Democrat thing or a conservative or liberal thing for that matter. It's become a system where they are doing more and more fundraising and more and more headline grabbing and less and less actual legislating. And you see these laws that are written and – they, they're writing them in increasingly vague terms and just kind of saying, ah, eh, the hell with it. We're just going to let the courts figure it out. McConnell was the first to realize, well, if we're just going to punt stuff to the courts, well, I'm going to get as many conservative judges on the federal bench as I can. Whether that's right or wrong, it's certainly cynical. Yeah, I think that you and I are by nature both pragmatists. And it's sort of a weird time to be a pragmatist because <laughs> – yeah. You know, if if the goal of politics is to wield power, 
you know, politicians on, on both sides are are pretty good at that. And Mitch McConnell may be the best there ever was. And him and Lyndon Johnson, probably. But if the goal of politics, if the end goal is to affect policy, I mean, there really is no legislative branch anymore. You're you're kinder to to them than I than I am. Because you're <laughs> I thought it was pretty harsh. You're suggesting that laws actually get passed. But I, I, I think that that branch of government has become totally supine, if not to the leaders of their party, the rhetorical leaders of their party, then to the extreme fringes of their constituencies. And so the art of the possible, I mean, it's like the end of the movie War Games with the tic-tac-toe, where that's that's what watching Congress is like. It's just, just watching them hit stalemate over and over and over again. So I don't know how politicians and policymakers are supposed to determine when to compromise and get things done and, and when to stand on principle. But it's, it's very hard for someone like me to navigate what to believe in anymore. You know, I, I refer to left Twitter, and I'm sure right Twitter is much the same idea as being a small group of individuals that punch way above their weight class in terms of their effect on policymakers. And, you know, you're absolutely right in that we have a lot of politicians right now who are struggling to figure out when to compromise, when to say, hey, let's make a decent deal here, and when to stand on principle. And I, I think they should probably be doing a lot more of the former than the latter. Well, a lot of those lawmakers uh, have only just graduated from being those Twitter trolls. So <laughs> that's a good point. <laughs> yeah, you, you you called yourself at the outset. You said that you were a an economic conservative and a social moderate, and I, I think I know uh, what you mean by economic conservative. You know, that's uh, lower taxes, supply side economics. Uh, but I, I want to probe a little bit more what you mean by social moderate. Is that something where you say that you're you are not as doctrinaire as the Christian right would be, or are you saying that you still you still hold those uh, traditionalist values, but it's about the the pace of change, as I sort of said at the outset of the podcast? What is it that you think makes your your social views moderate? I viewed it as kind of a balancing of my different points of view. Uh, for instance, I am and have always been stridently opposed to abortion on demand, but I've always, well, I guess not always, but certainly since college, I have been just fine with the idea of same-sex marriage. And I remember talking to Amanda Cronkite about this one time after one of our classes, and she said, wait a minute, you, you're opposed to abortion, which is a conservative but fairly conventional point of view. But you're OK with same sex marriage, which is way over here on the off the left cliff. I said, yeah. And you know, now that's you know, that's a fairly common mix of policy solutions. Yeah, I think a lot of people have come around to your way of thinking. I honestly I think more tolerance on everyone's side would be a lovely idea. <laughs> that's a very you know squishy thing to say, but well, if your definition of moderate is being somewhat squishy, I would say that explains my overall physique. See, you thought you're walking into the gorilla cage with banana underwear and you know the gorilla's kind of shaking your hand and saying, "Yeah, yeah, we we agree on a lot here." 
Yeah, I mean, I think if we talked about the issues like what lower taxes means and environmental policy, abortion, death penalty, uh, you know, I don't know that we would reach agreement even 50 percent of the time. But you and I are moderate enough and agreeable enough and pragmatic enough that if it was our job to come up with a solution that would help the majority of people who are struggling with these issues, I think you and I could come to a solution. But the behavioral economic incentives are totally misaligned right now, and, and they favor the accumulation and consolidation of power rather than good faith negotiation and compromise. And I don't know how you fix that without fundamentally improving our electoral process, the solution to which is, of course, subject to those same warped political dynamics. But hey, this isn't a podcast about solutions, just questions. (laughs) There are no solutions. There's only problems. (laughs) In this segment, I ask my guests to ask me a question, and this segment is called Turn the Tables. Turn the Tables. This question that you're about to give me is a total mystery to me. I'm eager to hear it. Let me have it. All right. A bit of background first for where this is coming from. You are the originator of one of my two favorite quotes about sports of all time. (laughs) The other one was John McKay, who coached some very bad Tampa Bay Buccaneers teams in the 1970s, was asked after yet another loss, Coach, how do you feel about your team's execution? McKay responded, I'm in favor of it. (laughs) Yep. In keeping with your views on capital punishment. (laughs) That is one of my favorite sports quotes. The other one. As a former fantasy player, I can co-sign on that, unfortunately. (laughs) I'm not proud of it. (laughs) The other one, however, was from you when you said, watching the Oakland A's in the playoffs makes me feel like I'm watching The Godfather and thinking that maybe Sonny's not going to get killed this time. Yep. Still true, actually. So with that said, if you were to change something about The Godfather, what would it be? Oh, boy. Ah, it came out of left field, didn't it? Change something about The Godfather. Well, I mean, right away, there's just an enormous amount of hubris there. I mean, The well, Godfather, yes. I, I would, I, I have just gone through the process, actually, of mathematically sorting and ranking my favorite movies of all time. And I'll be sharing that in uh, the Hammersley Exposition, which is Ooh. the newsletter that goes out uh, with this podcast. Nice um, plug. The Godfather, it's in the top 25 or thereabouts. So I think everyone would agree it's a masterpiece. It's hard to mess with a masterpiece. If I were to change anything about the movie, hmm, the the technical answer is I think the the lighting (laughs) is a little problematic in the mm-hmm. first the first act of the movie and you know I, I understand that there's an artistic purpose to the uh, interplay of, of light and shadow there but it is it is sometimes hard to make out the imagery in the movie but that's a, a quibble by someone who is not a film expert plot wise I mean it's sort of heartbreaking when Sonny is 
shot for a number of reasons because it is what sets Michael down the path of evil irretrievably. If that doesn't happen, maybe Michael isn't forced into that position and he can live a a more legitimate life. But it has to happen because Sonny is a time bomb. I mean, if if Sonny commits to all out war, Michael probably dies. The other part that sort of breaks my heart is Tessio. It never totally made sense to me that Tessio was the guy who sold out Michael at, at the end of the movie. Spoiler alert. Maybe, Spoiler alert for a 40-year-old movie. Right. Maybe that is explained better in the novel, which I have not read. Or maybe it makes more sense to a game theorist, which I am not. But it seemed to me that resolution comes out of nowhere. And that I don't think that moment was earned. And so I would probably have someone else be the turncoat. But I feel like I'm painting over the Mona Lisa. (laughs) I am not uh, so proud that I think that my opinions mean anything. Do you have an opinion on that question? I I thought about it myself. And I I, Tessio being the trader, that was definitely one of the things I thought of. And I, you know, like you, I would absolutely put The Godfather in my favorite movies ever and also the best movies I've ever seen. And they're not one in the same. I think you're right in the the thing with Tessio seemed a little rushed, a little forced. But I also I think the bigger thing that I thought of was it felt like the part in Sicily dragged a little too long. I think it could have I think they could have cut that down a little bit. And I, mm. I I think I understand what they were going for. I think he was trying to show that, hey, Apollonia, not Kay, was Michael's real love. And I got that. But it was kind of like, look, we all know he's going back to New York at some point. We know that that's where the the meat of this movie is going to take place. Uh, I, I it just seemed like it went on a little long. I don't know. I yeah, I absolutely yeah. agree with you. I think that the the episode with Apollonia is really important for Michael becoming who he is. And so you can't skip that, but you also just can't have the end of that story. You have to have the slow build up of their romance. And to be honest, that is definitely a section that I could see myself fast forwarding through. Yeah. Um, on the first viewing, it's really important, but I think that does hurt its rewatchability. The next segment is word association. Okay. I will give you 10 words one at a time, and all you have to do is say the first word or short phrase that comes into your head. So clear your mind. Let me know when it's clear. The mind is clear. Wood. Chuck. <laughs> School. Bus. Quarterback. Marino. Oh, yeah. It's him and <laughs> Peyton Manning are my two favorites. All time. And Randall Cunningham is number three. Oh, he was fun to watch. I, I almost thought about making a Randall Cunningham reference in response to the scrambles question. <laughs> All right. Continuing on. Cologne. Douchebag. <laughs> Steak. Rare. Daffodil. University of Rochester. 
oh my god, I'm confusing daffodils and dandelions. Well, that, I put it out there. It is what it is. Yeah, I mean, uh, you, somehow you made the connection. Somehow, I'm, uh, sorry, listeners, I'm an idiot. Mikhail Gorbachev. <laughs> Ronald Reagan. Trap. Mouse. Daughter. Mallory. Oh. Yeah, I've got three, but she's the oldest, so she gets the first. She, nope. She's <laughs> first first billing. <laughs> Last one. Heaven. Hell. <laughs> All right. And for our grand finale, it is time for the segment that is half eulogy, half apology. I call it Eulapologies. Listen, if you please. Eulapologies. And Phil, I'm going to start this segment with a question. Do you like Billy Joel? I love Billy Joel. I, I like Billy Joel, too. I love Billy Joel. He is prone to self-indulgence, but I think that that is a prerequisite for any artist. And he is one of the brave pop stars to have written a song about alatheology, which, as we all know, is the study of truth. In his song, Honesty, he says that honesty is such a lonely word because everyone is so untrue and that it's hardly ever heard. And I think that there is some truth itself in that lyric, but I also think that he's only scratching the surface of what honesty is. Typical Billy, by the way. <laughs> if you'll indulge me, my theory is that there are actually three kinds of honesty. So first you have uh, what you might call the George Washington style honesty, and that's the basic I cannot tell a lie kind of honesty, which I think most non-sociopathic people earnestly try to do, at least until they're caught in a difficult situation. So you could you could also call that honesty to others. And then secondly, you have uh, utopian honesty, which I think of as a, a deep fidelity to truth itself, the, the need to call a spade a spade. Larry David, or the dramatic fictionalization of Larry David, specializes in this kind of honesty. There are a lot of people who like to think of themselves as utopian truth-tellers, but they're not really talking about truth. They're talking about their beliefs, which is different, and when they get really loud about it in an unsolicited way, makes them a-holes. So <laughs> Sean Hannity and Keith Olbermann are a-holes. One of them might be your kind of a-hole. The other might be my kind of a-hole. They posture as beacons of truth, but they are not truth-tellers. They're just a-holes. And I think most of us are instinctively utopians, but just as instinctively we suppress those urges because most utopians are extremely unlikable, probably because they're frequently confused for a-holes. But you need to have a few of them around to speak truth to power. And finally, I think the most difficult of these is internal honesty, and that is honesty to oneself. And I don't necessarily mean abstinence from lying to ourselves. You know, sometimes you need to trick yourself into waking up in the morning. I'm talking about understanding your own strengths and weaknesses, embracing who you are, having your own code and living up to it, not being something that you know you're not. 
And I think that honesty gets kind of a bad rap these days because a lot of people use it as a shield to say bigoted and hurtful things. The whole notion of objective truth has now eroded to the point where people unironically refer to, quote unquote, their truth or uh, alternative facts and use the word frankly as a, a preface to utterly ordinary observations. Now, all of that being said, let me be frank with you, Phil, <laughs> and the audience. We're not super close, you and I. You know, I haven't talked or written to you that much since you graduated from the U of R. We didn't have a ton of heart-to-hearts when we both were in college. So I'm, I'm not going to pretend that I know you better than I really do. I know you best from those few years of college, a very weird road trip to Queens, New York, and <laughs> and the occasional email, blog, comment, and Christmas card since then. But the reason that you're on this show is because I have so much respect for your sense of honesty in all three phases that I just mentioned. Even from a distance, I can see you as a stand-up guy. And I think that you know, we probably see the world in different ways and don't agree on everything as as we talked about earlier. But I I truly believe that you come by your values honestly, without personal prejudice, and that makes you good counsel and a good friend. And as an example of that, and as a segue to my apology, I'm reminded especially of that road trip to Shea Stadium. I'm going to guess it was 1998. It might have been 1997. I think it was 98. I only really remember two things about that trip. Number one, the car in which some of us were riding broke down in Homer, New York, (laughs) which is a teensy little Mm -hmm. backwater town in the middle of the state. And number two, it was a, a truly weird collection of people on that trip, none of whom seemed to have anything in common Besides being white males who knew you. (laughs) And I remember thinking to myself, these guys are nothing like Phil. How does he even know these people? And it was so uptight and small minded of me. And ultimately, I realized it's because Phil accepts people for who they are without summary judgment. I think as humans, we should be able to ask that of each other, but you have to be pretty self-actualized to do it. I know I don't always live up to it myself. It says something not very flattering, I think, that I count you as a, a totem of diversity among my friends because you're politically right of center. It's, it's tempting for me to saddle you with assumptions and stereotypes. So I I apologize for the times when I gave in to that temptation, uh, with you anyway. Uh, I do reserve the right to to judge people on Twitter. But ultimately, I want to say how much I I value your friendship. You know, there's a quote from um, an episode of Sports Night, which is a quickly canceled but much celebrated show that ran in the early 2000s on ABC. And in it, uh, Isaac Jaffe, played by Robert Guillaume, he, he says, if you're dumb, surround yourself with smart people. If you're smart, surround yourself with smart people who disagree with you. 
I'm at the very least proud of myself to have associated with you as a a stand-up guy, an honest guy, uh, and I don't use this word for Gentiles very often, but a mensch. (laughs) And so uh, I want to thank you for uh, being such such good counsel and uh, and a, a good friend over the years. Of course. It's genuinely my pleasure, and it's very, very kind of you to say. Thank you. Shabbat shalom to you as well. <laughs> <laughs> and so, Phil, uh, if that is your real name, there endeth the Hammersley Inquisition. Thank you to all the listeners out there. If you have any questions, comments, compliments, or complaints, you can reach out at hammersley at gmail.com. This is a reminder that you can also subscribe to that email newsletter, the Hammersley Exposition, at buttondown.email. Yes, dot email slash hammersley. Main title theme generously provided by Jason Menkes at Copilot Music and Sound. Additional material provided by Jeremy Rothman. All opinions and bad jokes are solely my own and do not represent the views of my employer, my family, my friends, and especially my guests. Until next time, my name is Jason Hammersley. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. The Inquisition, what a show. The Inquisition, here we go. We know you're wishing that we'd go away.